Well, we, uh, we live in a time that's uh, pretty confused about many things, don't we? And that's certainly no less true when it comes to understanding the roles of men and women and of husbands and wives. And so this morning, uh, the passage that we'll be looking at as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians is one that has uh, certainly had no shortage of controversy or opinions. But it's important for us to recognize that Paul is addressing a particular cultural issue in first century Corinth. And yet, as he does, he also taps into a truth that God has embedded into the very fabric of creation, into the very fabric of the whole universe. And while there are different cultural expressions of gender roles and different uh, manifestations of sinful grasping at status uh, or authority, these timeless truths, they still speak to our culture today. Even though in Corinth, what that looked like was uh, men covering their heads while they prayed or prophesied, and women uncovering their heads while they prayed or prophesied, even though that's a very different cultural expression back then to what we perhaps might have today, the same root sins are present today. And so as we come to the passage uh, shortly, it's worth us thinking about this question, how do you honour your head? How do you honour your head? Uh, If that doesn't seem to make much sense to you, just wait until we get into the passage and it'll become a lot clearer after Regs comes and reads it in a moment. And we're going to get into the detail of exactly what that means uh, as as I preach later. And so, uh, in a moment, we're actually going to sing the song, uh, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Whate'er, of course, is just whatever, but with an apostrophe to replace the V. Whatever my God ordains is right. And this song is uh, obviously a declaration of the truth of God's sovereignty. Um, It is also a a prayer of humble submission and trust in all that God does. And that's especially the case in, in the face of suffering. That's the particular focus of this song. But it's important to remind ourselves of this even when we're not thinking about suffering, isn't it? Like when it comes to thinking about the way that God has uh, ordained the families and the people and the uh, bodies that we are in and the places that we uh, find ourselves. This is a song of trust in the fact that whatever God ordains in how He has made us and in what He has done in our lives is right. And so I think it's a fitting thing to meditate on as we approach this passage this morning. So how about I pray for us, and then we'll sing that song. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled once again by you, by your word, and just as we've sung, by the fact that we are able to share in the grace and the love and the mercy that you pour out to us in Christ. God, we are so thankful that you have made us alive in him, our living head. 
and we've been clothed in righteousness divine because of His sacrifice for us. Father, as we approach this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 this morning, God, would you open our hearts? God, would you open our minds, our eyes, our spirits to hear what you have to say? Lord, keep us from um, letting our own sinfulness and the ideas of the world around us shape our minds and our hearts. And Lord, by your Spirit, may you shape us by your Word. And in that, God, may we ever learn to trust that all that you do is right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. From 1 Corinthians 11, from verse 2 to 16. I'll give you a moment to find those in your Bibles. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Thank you, Vegas. So, heads or veils? Heads? <laughs> Do you, like, you see what I did there? You like <laughs> Heads, you win. Veils, you lose. If you have power and authority, you win. If you are under authority and need to submit to anyone else but yourself, you lose. At least that's what most people would have you believe today about this passage and about the whole idea of authority and submission in general. In our day and age, where where the winner is seen as the one who has the power and the loser is the one who is seen to be the one who is powerless, or perhaps where the winner is the person who has the freedom to do whatever it is that they want, 
And the loser is the person who has constraints and boundaries on them that come from outside of themselves. It can be easy to view this passage that way. Perhaps you struggle with that yourself. But you know, the Bible never views authority or boundaries in that way. The way of Christ is the way of humble submission. The way up, as they say for Christians, is down. This is why books have been written that make the case that humility actually became a virtue in the West because of Christianity. For Christ's followers to have authority is to have Christ-like authority. That is, authority that is always used to serve others. And for every Christ follower to submit to Him is to honour Him. To submit to Him is to honour Him, your head. So as we explore this passage this morning, let's open our Bibles, let's open our hearts and our minds and seek God's truth and seek to respond humbly to it. As I mentioned before, if this is something that you struggle with, I give you uh, my uh, promise, if I can say that, that I have sought to uh, understand this passage uh, to the best of my ability And if there is something with which you struggle with or or perhaps want to come and talk to me about afterwards, I am more than happy to do that. I should also add today that uh, that today's sermon may go a little bit longer than usual. Uh, There is a lot to unpack from this passage. So uh, as we carefully do that, please bear with me and also uh, note your thoughts as you go along. And I'll be, as I said, very keen to discuss it with you later. So, heads or veils... Now, this morning, we're going to explore an answer to that question through three points. Firstly, get your head straight. Secondly, don't lose your head. And thirdly, a full head of hair. So let's begin from point number one. Get your head straight. I should realize I don't have individual slides for the titles. Sorry, but there you go. Point one, get your head straight. Let's read together from your Bibles in verse two. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So you might remember from last week, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And now he changes subjects to here where he begins this section commending the Corinthians on maintaining the traditions that he delivered to them. Now, for those of you who might associate uh, the word traditions with traditional views or or values, uh, Paul actually is referring here to the whole body of his teaching, not just certain practices, not just, you know, we we, we use the word traditions and we think of things that we do, but Paul is actually here referring to his whole body of teaching. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15 makes that clear to us. I'll I'll let you read that in another time. But you can see that he's talking about all of his teaching and the gospel that he knows. And then he says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. And so Paul here is commending the Corinthians by saying, uh, you have held to the traditions. 
And yet, it's clear that there's still some stuff that he needs to address amongst them. And that's exactly why Paul goes on to do just that. Verse 3 is Paul's theological grounding for everything that he goes on to say in, this, in the rest of this passage. And the instructions that he's about to give with regard to women and, and men and uh, covering or uncovering their heads are grounded in this theological truth. And so let's look at verse 3 together. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Well, let's go for north of the jugular and ask the essential question for interpreting this verse, and that is, what does head mean? What does head mean? You see, where you land on this is going to significantly change the way that you interpret the rest of this passage. Right here at the head, there is a crucial thing that we need to sort out. Now, there are three main suggestions offered by interpreters of Scripture, and that is that one, it means source, two, that it means prominence or preeminence, or three, that it means and refers to authority. And as with all words, what we need to do is seek to understand them in context. And in Kune Greek, which is the type of Greek Paul wrote in, uh, such usage of the word to mean source uh, is extremely rare. Uh, It's even contested as to whether there are actually any uses of this word head to refer to a source when talking about people. So, yes, it has been used to refer to the source of rivers. Uh, It's it's the the head of the river. But even that is actually a a metaphorical use of the actual word head. That's that's two steps away. As for the meaning of of prominence, uh, once again, this uh, isn't well attested to in the literature, and it's probably trying to keep some kind of meaning that maintains uh, a priority without it sounding like authority. Uh, There are long and complicated arguments as to why this might be the meaning of the word head. Uh, But that argument is put forth. And so to understand it as source uh, is what is most commonly argued by those who would say that this passage does not teach anything with regard to authority structures between men and women, between husbands and wives. And those who uh, understand it as meaning prominence or leads to a variety of interpretations. Some might say that, some might say some other things. Well, I think uh, that the most faithful sense of the word head here is to translate it as referring to a kind of authority and is also what makes best sense of the text, of this passage. And not only is that because this is virtually what all the Greek dictionaries say with regard to the meaning of it, and also because there are a significant number of clear examples of this sense in Greek literature where head is used to refer to authority. But perhaps the most obvious reason is because of Paul's use himself. And we're going to discover that later in verse 10. But uh, as we read earlier, the use of the word head in Ephesians 5 is clearly talking about submission and authority. But if we take that view, we now still have to unpack what that means, right? Paul shows an order in the Godhead 
which has an earthly equivalent in marriage. That's verse 3. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Husband is the head of wife. The ordering of marriage is patterned after the ordering of the Trinity. But there are a couple of important things to note about this, at least. Firstly, to say that Christ is the head of man doesn't mean that Christ isn't also the head of woman. Christ is, after all, he's the head of the church. And women are, last I checked, part of the church. And so whether you're married or whether you're single, if you are in Christ, Christ is your head. Secondly, when we say that God is the head of Christ, we're not suggesting that Jesus is somehow inferior to God. In fact, Paul, he has likely used the terms God and Christ instead of the terms Father and Son to draw attention to the difference between the oneness within the Godhead and the distinctiveness within the Godhead. So by speaking of Jesus as Christ, Paul points to Jesus' earthly mission. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, and the Messiah is the Savior who is prophesied about in the Old Testament. And so if you listen closely to Scripture, you will hear the biblical authors speak of Jesus as both man and God, depending on what they're referring to. So, for example, as we saw in uh, chapter 8, verse 6 of this letter, Paul is making it very clear that Jesus is God by using the language of the well-known Shema. That is, the call for Israel to acknowledge that the Lord, Yahweh, is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Israelites were monotheistic. That is, they believed only in one God. That's the whole point of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in the Greek translations of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, the word Yahweh in the Old Testament is translated as Lord. And this is actually what our English translations do as well, except we capitalize it to show that we're referring to the name Yahweh. So you'll see... Oh, it should be capitalized there. <laughs> if you look it up in your own, if you look it up in your own Bibles, you'll see uh, that it should be capitalized in, in Deuteronomy 6:4. But we do that to indicate that we're referring to the name of God, that Yahweh, as opposed to just a generic word, uh, the Hebrew word Adonai, meaning Lord. And so you, when Paul says this in chapter 8, he is still he's affirming the monotheism of, of his Jewish history. He's he's affirming that, but he is saying something which would be absolutely radical to the Jews, which is that Jesus is part of that one God. He is one with God. And in today's passage, what we see is Paul actually showing us how Jesus was, whilst he was one with God, was distinct and that he also submitted to the Father's will as a man. And that is something that we see in Luke twenty-two forty-two, isn't it? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is both fully God, 
and one with the Father as part of the Trinity, and he is also fully man as the one who descended from heaven and took on flesh. Now, the church has had uh, many, many debates over many, many years about this, and they, they continue today. So I'm not going to go into the finer points right now about this doctrine, but please come and chat to me afterwards if you'd like to. The point is, Jesus as man, as the Christ, the Messiah, submitted to the Father. And this, you see, works on a couple of levels. In the same way that God and Christ are equal in their essence, equal in their very being, in who they are, so husband and wife are equal in their essence in their very being, and in who they are. In the same way that Jesus Christ, as man, submits to the Father, so a wife submits to her husband as a wife. Equal in essence and inherent value, yet distinct in role. Some might suggest to you that uh, what I've just said uh, is really just another way of saying, well, all people are created equal, but some are more equal than others. Which, to interpret that phrase, means you say we're equal, you're, you're using words to indicate that we're equal, but by saying that wives ought to submit to a husband's authority actually means we're not equal. But in order to come to that conclusion, you would need to have a definition of equality that gets its meaning from somewhere other than the Bible. We're going to get into this a bit more in point two, but let me just say for now that the Bible doesn't speak of equality the same way that we do in our culture today. It sees equality of worth and equality of worth and value and difference in roles as entirely compatible. Those things can go together. We even saw an example of this in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul doesn't diminish the humanity of the bondservant simply because he's a bondservant. And he doesn't suggest that he should get out of being a bondservant because it makes him a lesser human being. Do you see that? If we're to understand this passage rightly, then that is something we need to grasp right here at the outset. Right at the head of this passage, we need to get our heads straight by understanding the meaning of head. Which, as I've said, means authority. And that in no way diminishes the value of women or wives. So now that we've grasped that, we must now ensure that we don't lose our heads, which brings us to point two. Don't lose your head. Let's read from verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, 
Let her cover her head. Have you ever read something in the Bible that you are absolutely sure you do not understand? Yep. Well, uh, I think this is probably one of these, those passages for the vast majority of us. And let me first say that um, at this stage, we're not going to go into what a praying or prophesying means. Uh, we'll, we'll save that for chapters 12 to 14 when we get there. But for now, let's just take it as a given that men and women in the Corinthian church both prayed and prophesied in the, in the gathering, okay? Now, the next thing to note is that Paul first begins by giving instructions to whom? The men. And this is something that is often lost in our day. You see, this passage is at least as much about Paul giving instructions to the men about right conduct when the church is gathered as it is about giving instructions to the women. It's just that, understandably, we hear the specific instructions to the women with more sensitive ears in our culture. But it is worth bearing that in mind. And speaking of culture, one of the main reasons for that is because the way we dress and what is communicated by the way we dress, it changes from culture to culture and time to time. And so our understanding of what Paul is addressing here is greatly helped by getting some cultural background, especially with regard to head coverings. If you are reading the passage in one of our Blue Bibles, you'll see that the ESV actually makes notes about this. And so allow me to take you for a bit of a walk through ancient Corinth, largely thanks to Australian scholar Bruce Winter. This picture here is, a well, uh, is one of a well-preserved statue of Caesar Augustus, and it is called the Via Labicana. And here you can see that Caesar Augustus, the emperor, has his toga pulled up over his head. Uh, and this statue was actually dug up in Corinth and is actually now on display uh, in the National Museum of Rome. His hand, as you can see there, it has not survived the perils of millennia in the dirt. Uh, but the, what his hand was, is most likely in that picture, uh, in, in this sculpture, holding uh, a libation, which is a drink offering to the gods. Now, we know this because of other statues like it and because of the, the position that it's in. Uh, we also know it because we have coins depicting Augustus with his toga over his head uh, making offerings. And uh, pictures of those are a bit harder to find, so unfortunately I don't have any. You're just going to have to trust the journal article's word for it. Okay? But on top of that, here is also a carving that is on the side of an altar from a temple of Vespasian. Around, and Vespasian was a Roman emperor from 69 to 79 AD. This temple and the altar... Uh, is actually in Pompeii, Italy, and it has this carving on it, which shows a temple sacrifice of a bull. So you notice there, uh, the person with the man with the toga over his head is the priest officiating this sacrifice. Priests and emperors and elite Roman men, they often actually played this role whenever offerings to the gods were made. And those could occur even at social gatherings. Well, you can see where this is going, can't you? When Paul says that any man 
who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. He's saying that such a man is dishonouring Christ. And he is doing so because, A, he's bringing this pagan religious practice into the church gathering, and B, he's trying to bring yet another status symbol into the gatherings of the church. This is yet one more example of the Corinthians bringing the world of Corinth into the church. See, instead of showing humility when they prayed by submitting to Christ, who is the head, these Corinthian men were making a showy display of their status by copying the Roman pagans. They wanted to be elite like them. By covering their heads, they dishonoured their head, who is Christ. But what did veils mean for women? Well, let me take you for another walk through ancient Corinth. In Paul's day, it was common for married women, that is to say, this isn't something that single women did, it was common for married women to wear veils, not just at their weddings, like that picture in the middle, but also as a continued symbol of their commitment to their husbands. They continued to wear them in public. This is so well known in history that if you look up the Wikipedia article on veils, don't do it now, just make a note of it and check it out later, you'll find that they're stated simply as a fact. And you'll also see that it says that for a woman to be seen in public without her veil on was to broadcast to the world that she wanted to get out of the marriage. The consul Sulpicius Gallus divorced his wife because she left the house with a veil on. Now, of course, Wikipedia isn't the only source I would want to cite on this, uh, but I cite it to show you that this is an accepted and a widespread understanding of Roman culture. Now, that might sound crazy and backwards to us, but it's a crucial step for us to grasp what is going on in this passage. And actually, remove the cultural aspect of it, and this is something we understand, isn't it? A friend of mine who was a missionary in Tanzania, when she first got there, asked some friends uh, where the local gym was. And her friends, somewhat shocked, asked, why would you want to go to a gym? And she said, oh, well, you know, I just want to go for a run on a treadmill or something like that. You know, of course, in Australia, that's completely normal for a woman to go and do that. Uh, oh, no, they said, no, 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 no you, you don't understand. If a woman goes to a gym here, she's advertising that she's a loose and promiscuous woman. Well, you can could, could imagine her surprise <laughs> at hearing that. But um, we've got our own social cues as well, don't we? I mean, can you imagine if a husband or a wife decided to uh, go to the pub or go out with friends and they intentionally made themselves look really nice and then took off their wedding ring? Such a move would be making a very clear statement about the state of your marriage and your intentions in going out like that. And in the Roman Empire... 
We also know that there were laws that carried the penalty of shaving a woman's hair if she was guilty of adultery. And that basically gave her the status of a prostitute. That's why Paul says rhetorically in verse 6 that a wife might as well shave her head if she doesn't cover it. And why? Obviously, because it's disgraceful. He's not saying that's a good option. He's saying for that reason, you should cover it. And so when you bring all of that together, you can see why a wife praying or prophesying without a veil dishonors her head. That is, dishonors her husband. To do such a thing in Corinthian culture would be equivalent to taking off your wedding ring when you came to church. Now, if you've got a different translation in front of you or an ESV Bible uh, that has other text notes, you might see that the words husband and wife there can be translated as man or woman. Uh, And that's because in Greek, the word for man is the same as the word for husband, and the word for woman is the same as the word for wife. Uh, The context normally is what tells you how to interpret it. Now, as far as I'm aware, the ESV is the only English translation that translates in this passage a few instances as husband and wife, uh, and I think it's done so correctly. In first century Corinth, as we've just discovered and talked about, when Paul used this language of covered with regard to women, covering their heads, you can almost guarantee that every person reading or hearing that would have immediately thought about this practice of married women covering their heads as a sign of marital faithfulness. And that's what the ESV is trying to bring out in the translation. You'll also notice that throughout this passage, the ESV flips between man and woman and husband and wife in its translation, and that's because it understands this passage to be addressing the relationships between husband and wife, but explaining those from general truths in nature. Now, it's worth us asking the question, why would a Christian woman do such a thing? Well, just as the men were acting in ways that were trying to mimic the Corinthian men in their society, it seems that perhaps some of the women in the Corinthian church were doing the same. You might remember from a few chapters ago that the expectation of women in marriage was that they should simply accept the fact that their husbands were going to have multiple sexual partners throughout the course of the marriage. It was just part of society. Well, as one might expect... Uh, there began to be a bit of a revolt against that by some of the women, particularly the elite women, who wanted to declare that they had freedom of their own, just as much as the men did. They were bucking against those accepted norms and trends. And so is it possible that some of the women in the church were starting to fall prey to that way of thinking? Well, given the state of the Corinthian church and what we've read so far in the letter... I don't find it too hard to believe. Now, it's, it's important also to know that, that this problem wasn't necessarily rife in the church. I mean, that's why Paul says at the beginning, hey, I commend you. It's, it's likely that it's probably just a few rogue people. But it is clear that some were starting to be contentious, as we read about in verse 16. Now, uh, I understand that that's a lot of background. Uh, information that I need to give you in order for us to get to the meaning of this text. 
Uh, but I give it because I think it makes the best sense of the text. Uh, obviously, our ESV translations think so too. That's why they put those notes in, even though they hardly put any other notes in it. But if that explains verses 4 to 6 by saying it's about husbands and wives and, and these particular conventions of covering heads and uncovering them, what do we do with the next section? Well, let's read on, shall we? From verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, I'm sure you, like me, when I first read this, are dying to hear why a symbol of authority on a woman's head matters because of the angels. We will get there, Lord willing. Uh, they don't expect too much. You'll notice here that uh, the ESV now switches in its translation to man and woman. That's because it's clear from verse 8 that Paul is now making a case from something that is embedded in creation. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that he's completely forgotten about marriages, that suddenly now he's just talking about all men and women. On the contrary, I think he's showing how the roles we have in marriage are rooted in God's created order. After all, Adam and Eve were the first married couple. But the point is, as you can see from verse 8, Paul is making his statements in verse 7 based on the creation narrative in Genesis 2, which we read earlier. That's why 4 is at the start of verse 8. Paul is summarizing Genesis chapter 2, verses 20, verse 23. And so when Paul says in verse 7 that man is the glory of God, then our minds ought to go back to Genesis. And in Genesis 1, over the course of six days, God creates the universe and everything in it, and on the sixth day, He creates the crowning jewel of His creation, man. And why is man the crowning jewel? Because He's made in the image of God. He's made in His likeness. This is why Paul can say, man is the glory of God. Glory here likely shares a, a similar sense as honor, which Paul has just been talking about in verses 4 to 6. And so when man reflects God and his image, he honors him. And as we know from Genesis 2, man was made first. But... Guess who else is made in the image of God? That's right, woman. It's true, yes, it's true that she's made out of man, as Genesis 2 tells us, but Genesis 1 is unmistakably clear that despite the fact that she was made second and made out of man, she is no less made in the image of God. This is how Matthew Henry uh, puts it in his commentary on Genesis 2. Yet man being made last of the creatures as the best and most excellent of all, Eve's being made after Adam and out of him puts an honour upon that sex as the glory of the man. If man is the head, she is the crown. 
a crown to her husband, the crown of the visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust double refined, one remove further from the earth. I kind of like that. If you don't believe me that woman is just as much made in the image of God as man is, well, just read Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. And Paul's no fool. He knows this. He knows his Bible incredibly well. And this is why he says in verse 7 that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What's missing from the second part of that sentence? The image. That's because Paul is careful to communicate that woman is not the image of man. She's made in the image of God. And that fact alone should put to rest any argument that any person might try to make that women are inferior to men or wives are inferior to husbands because they submit to them as their head. The Bible makes this fact crystal clear. Women and men are of equal value and worth because they are both made in the image of God. And that equality is expressed through distinct differences and roles for men and women. Paul's point in verse 7 is uh, in saying that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man is that because of the created order, there is a sense in which woman brings honor to man. And I think it's pretty clear here that the context Paul is referring to is the marriage relationship especially because he connects this to the issue of head coverings. Of course, Paul points to the very first marriage between Adam and Eve in verses, seven, verses 8 and 9. So verse 8 is simple enough to understand. Eve was made from Adam's rib, as we read about in Genesis 2.22. That's clearly what Paul is referring to. Woman was made from man. But verse 9 might cause a few people to get a little bit worked up. After all, if you get told to take it down. What do you mean, Paul, that man wasn't created for woman, but woman for man? Are you suggesting that the only reason women exist is to do the bidding of men as though they were an entire half of the human race, especially created to serve the other half like slaves? No, that's not what he's saying. He's simply pointing back to the narrative in Genesis where God seeks to create a helper for Adam, as we see in Genesis 2, 18. Sorry, that's the wrong verse. Um, and now again, this might be harder for, hard to hear for our 21st century Western ears, right? Because we hear the word helper, and we hear that as meaning something which is a lower status, and in our minds, that therefore means inequality. But the Bible doesn't see the glorious creation of women in that way at all. One of the ways it highlights this is that right after God says he brings, uh, right after he says this, he brings all sorts of animals to Adam to help try and help him find a suitable helper. 
but none of them are found. And so God especially makes Eve for him. And what does Adam say? At last, at last, here is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Genesis continues, once again, showing that the equality of men and women, uh, of men and women uh, exists in the marriage relationship by saying they become one flesh. Now, it's important for us to pause here and to consider the implications of this and think about what it means in practice. Paul is, is not saying in this passage that all women must submit to the authority of all men. Yes, there are implications for authority in church, which we find in other passages of the Bible, but this principle is being specifically applied here to husbands and wives. As I've mentioned, he's addressed this practice of husbands and wives wearing or not wearing head coverings by pointing to these deep truths that a husband is a wife's head and her authority And so what's the problem that is manifesting itself in men covering their heads and women uncovering their heads? Well, both of them are wanting to gain status, power, worth, and independence from one another rather than submitting to God's good design in marriage. And they are flaunting that in the gathering of the church. The husband wants to be like the elite Corinthian man. And the wife wants to be like the so-called free Corinthian woman. Well, (laughs) I'm glad... uh, That's not a problem in our culture, right? (laughs) Uh. Husbands, surely, surely, (laughs) you don't see uh, your status at work or uh, your status with the boys or how you're advancing in your career as more important than the Christ-like sacrifice God calls you to in marriage. Surely you don't see that, do you? Surely you're not tempted to stop treating your wife as though she is the one person in the world to whom you have the highest obligation and deserves your best in everything? Wives, surely, surely you're not tempted to see your value as a human being diminished by simply being a wife or a mother, are you? Surely, you don't long for the kind of attention from other men that perhaps your single girlfriends get. You see, even though we're not covering or uncovering our heads in 21st century Darwin, at least not for the same reasons, the same root issues, they're not so far away, are they? do we not also seek to tear down God's good design by seeking to go our own way rather than His way? 
do we not also assume that we can flourish in our marriages by rejecting what God says about them and by choosing instead to live on our own terms? Paul's point in this passage is that God has made us and designed us in such a way that we all bear His image and we ought to live knowing and reflecting that truth. God's desire for you, whether you are married or single, is that you wouldn't find your worth in being desirable to other people, but in the fact that you are desirable to Him. God's desire for you is that you don't live seeking status in society or approval in the eyes of the elite, but that you would live knowing fullness of joy and meaning in Him. For husbands and wives, that means a a rightly ordered marriage where neither party is seeking to gain advantage over the other, but seeks to love and serve and sacrifice for one another. Ephesians 5, which we read earlier, helps us understand this. The husband follows Christ in laying down his life for his wife, and the wife willingly, joyfully submits, knowing that his headship is being exercised in a Christ-like manner. And for all of us, it means an interdependence, a dependence on one another that is ingrained into our DNA. And that's the point of verse 11. Have a look at it. I promise I'm not skipping verse 10. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. In case you thought authority meant, for some reason, that men are superior to women, Paul here is trying to make it very clear. He reminds us that that is not the case. And he takes another example from creation. There is a dependency between man and woman. Woman was made from man at the beginning, but now man comes from woman. Notice this is still within the context of the marriage relationship, though now he's referring to the fact that the wife also becomes a mother. And this is how the human race continues. It shows a mutuality for men and women, a dependency on one another. You may have heard of the uh, the Amazons, a mythical race of only women that may or may not have been based on actual female warriors. But according to the legend, in order to keep the race of the Amazons going, They had to uh, get together with the neighboring race of Gargarians who were somewhat uh, conveniently all men. And uh, when the Amazons had their children, they would keep the girls and the Gargarians would keep the boys. That makes sense, doesn't it? This is basic biology. The human race would die out very quickly if men and women decided, you know what, we don't need each other. 
And it is in this context that Paul is showing that even though there is an authority and responsibility given to husbands to lead their wives and for wives to submit to their husbands, that in no way creates some kind of two-tiered class in the human race. And he makes this even more explicit in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Being one in Christ erases any claim to being above someone else based on gender or any other distinctions. And that's why he can say that all things are from God. All things are from God. Do you see that? Neither man nor woman, husband nor wife, can claim superiority because even though woman was made from man, now man is born of woman and God is the originator of all. Whether it's husband submitting to Christ as head or wife submitting to husband as head, we all honour our head by submitting ultimately to God, through whom are all things. So what does that mean for us today? Well, I don't think uh, any married couples here are tempted to leave their wedding rings at home when they come to church. But if you are, let's have a chat about that. But such an action, as much as that may be unlikely for most of us, it taps into those thoughts and questions I asked earlier, doesn't it? Whether married or single, is who you are built upon the fact that you are made in God's image... Or is it built upon something else? Do you desire the accolades, the status, the recognition from men more than you do God? Are you looking for status among your peers? Are you looking for attention and approval from the opposite sex? This can manifest itself in all sorts of ways. For men, it can look like putting career first in everything. Getting the next leg up on the promotion or always taking that overtime shift, they become the highest priorities. Or perhaps by simply succumbing to peer pressure, even in things that you know that are wrong. Trying to find some wriggle room or you know, in those you know, under-the-table deals or fudging those tax returns or telling white lies for the sake of success or for the sake of being one of the boys and not being cut off by them. Being right in their eyes is a sure path to judgment in God's eyes. Not to mention the cost to wives and families for husbands. For women, it can look like seeing yourself only as valuable if you gain a lot of attra- attention or attraction from guys. Or it can look like defining freedom in such a way that dishonors God. Loosening boundaries on dressing modestly, redefining success as a woman, as being uh, an independent woman who submits to no one and who looks down upon a life of being committed to your husband and your kids, who sees the life of motherhood as something that is subpar 
to being so-called successful? I'm sure those temptations remain even after getting married. And of course, all of this is easily amplified when gathered with the church, as it was for the Corinthians. Rather than this gathering of brothers and sisters being an opportunity to encourage and serve one another, it can so easily collapse into becoming a forum for boasting and showing ourselves off. Do you honour your head by humbly submitting to God's design for us as men and women, as husbands and wives? Do you honour your head by seeking to live according to God's good design? All things are from God. All submit to Him. You see, it's in this context, in this understanding of the uniqueness of men and women and the roles of husbands and wives and their interdependence that Paul then says that a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Some translate this as, if you read the NIV, for example, authority over her own head. And because the only word that's actually there in the Greek is simply the word authority, and so there's debate as to what Paul is referring to, and they might argue that, or they would argue that this makes more sense grammatically and it means a woman should have authority on her head. But given the context and the fact that Paul has been talking about heads and authority in marriage, I personally find that to be unlikely. In order to come to that reading, you have to really reinterpret a lot of the passage against the grain. And not only that, but the fact that many early church fathers understood Paul to be referring to a symbol of authority here gives credence to the way the ESV translates it. And of course, given our understanding of the Roman practice of wives covering their heads, I think it makes so much sense and brings the whole passage together. But of course, we need to then ask, why do women have to have that because of the angels? Well, this lovely little nugget that Paul drops in for us, one of many, has certainly had many, many, many words uh, attempted to explain it. The first thing to say is that uh, our English word, angels, comes from the Greek word angelos. It's a double G, but it's pronounced angelos, which basically means messenger. Uh, and it also came to be used to refer to God's messengers, namely what we call angels. I think the, the two most plausible options of this verse are that Paul is either talking about actual angels, that is, messengers from God, who observe the gatherings of the church and whom we, as a church, should be conducting ourselves well before. People are, angels are watching as we gather. That's option one. Option two is that Paul is actually talking about human messengers. We'll go into this a little bit more next week, but the church gathering, which was often in a home, in Roman's home, Roman homes were quite open 
And so people were able to just come in and check out what was going on. Uh, we, we know this not just from history, but even from this very letter later on in chapter 14. Paul makes it clear that there are outsiders and unbelievers who enter into the gatherings. And earlier on, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11, we, we see that Paul has given a report, uh, has received a report from those in Chloe's household. And so messengers could very easily be referring to people who came into the gathering and then gave reports to others. To be honest, I think both are plausible. And the latter one certainly fits well in the context, though Paul and the New Testament's use of the word angelos might tilt me towards that reading. But I'll let you decide which you think is more plausible. Either way, the point is that the church, especially husbands and wives, should display godly conduct in how they act and dress and what it is that they are broadcasting to the world whenever they gather for the purpose of the messengers who may be watching. So how do you honour your head? Well, Paul's got one more lesson from nature to teach us, so let's go to our last point. A full head of hair. Let's read from verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul now, as he did in the previous chapter, appeals for the Corinthians to make a decision based on what he's just said. Given these realities of nature, he says, as well as the context of our culture's practice of head coverings of men and women, isn't it clear? Judge for yourselves, he says. But he doesn't stop there. He also points out that nature itself teaches that a man who has long hair is disgraceful, but for a woman it is her glory. Now, many people here stop and say, aha, if you want to take this passage literally, then you need to say that men should never have long hair. Paul is pointing to a distinction in something you see in nature. So therefore, men should never have long hair. If that's true, then I've sinned twice in my life by growing my hair out to the point where many women were very jealous of it, <laughs> including my wife. No, she wasn't quite jealous of it. And, you know, I wouldn't be the only one that Paul would be indicting with that. Paul would be saying that Samson from the Old Testament, as well as all the other Nazarites who took a vow not to shave their heads, which we see in Numbers 6, verse 5. Oh, sorry, that slide's disappeared. In Numbers 6, 5, we see that. He would be saying that they are also sinning and also acting in contrary to their nature as men. We've got to ask ourselves, how is it that Paul could argue that nature itself teaches us that men have short hair? I mean, doesn't hair grow at the same speed as women, you know, regardless? What we're seeing here is Paul pointing to the fact that nature itself teaches that men and women are different, and in his day this was expressed by the length 
of hair. Here is a picture of typical Roman men, all with short hair of the Julio-Claudian period, which is 25 BC-ish to 60-something AD. For a man to grow his hair long in his culture was to signal to the world that he wanted to lessen or perhaps even deny his manhood. On the flip side, long hair in women was back then and generally still is today seen as desirable, attractive, and a mark of womanness. That's true even across cultures today. I think that is likely what Paul is pointing to here in saying that her long hair is her glory. And he's also pointing to the reason for married women covering their heads. As we said before, one of the reasons for the covering was because a wife's hair should only be seen by her husband. And so what we see here is Paul pointing to distinctions that exist in nature between men and women that are expressed in certain ways in Corinthian culture. And so for us, that means that we ought to maintain those distinctions between men and women the way our culture expresses them. So in 21st century Australia, men wearing pink or having man buns, women wearing pants, or having short hair, they are acceptable expressions of male-female distinctions, and therefore, according to this passage, are totally fine. Even if the man bun is a horrifically disgusting trend. And that's because these cultural expressions, they they don't blur the line between maleness and femaleness. When I wear pink bodies, nobody's going, oh, JR's trying to be a woman. The very fact that we call it a man bun indicates that it's not men trying to be women. Mm. (laughs) Of course, we live in a culture now, this is important, (laughs) that that is really pushing hard to blur those lines between male and female. That is something we absolutely must be aware of. Harry Styles, former One Direction singer, posed on the cover of Vogue last year wearing a dress. And he is a strong advocate for blurring gender distinctions. He's he's certainly not alone. Now, this is going to be a challenge for the church. This is going to be a challenge for us as Christians. That is not going to go away anytime soon. How we best address this issue will be one that we need to think through clearly and carefully as a church. But the anchor and the guiding principle will always be that there is a distinction between men and women, between male and female, and however that is expressed in our society, that distinction must be maintained. Because that is the way God has designed human beings in his image. And he has ordained that so for our good. I know this can be difficult for many to hear. 
And it is hard because our modern selves want to say that what I feel I am is what I truly am, regardless of, how, of what I was born as. And yes, we need to love and have empathy for and journey with people as they wrestle with these things. But just like with our sin, the best way that we can love someone hurting or confused about these issues is to lovingly point them to the God who made them to speak truth to them and help them see that true freedom comes through submitting to Christ and not submitting to self. True freedom comes through freedom in Christ, not through freedom of self-expression and self-determination. You honor your head by honoring the way God has made you, whether as male or as female. Well, to finish this section off, as I mentioned before, Paul indicates that some were being contentious, and he addresses them now. Let's read verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Here Paul is likely addressing those trying to head down the path of these Christ-dishonoring practices. Well, here Paul is saying that no such practice exists in all the churches of God. And he's done, as he's done several times in this letter, he points to the universality of what all the churches are doing. He's saying, this isn't just something for you guys. I'm not trying to say that only Corinthian women should cover their heads. He's saying, this is for all Christians. And that's true for us today. So, heads or veils? Do heads win and do veils lose? Well, if you think that being the head makes you superior and makes you the winner, you've lost. And if you think that wearing a veil, also known as submitting to your husband, makes you inferior and makes you the loser, you've lost. The true winner is the one who sees that our living head, the one that we are alive in, is honoured when we submit to Him and to His design for our lives. But how can we possibly live this, right? Well, friends, I have good news for you. When we look to Christ, we see one who won, not by lording it over everyone, but by laying aside his status. When we look to Christ, we see one who won, not by claiming and grasping for power, but by laying down his life as a perfect sacrifice for sin, so that we might be able to turn from our sin and trust in him and receive forgiveness. 
until we see that losing is rejecting Christ and receiving the penalty of our sin, which is God's righteous wrath. And that winning is trusting in Jesus and doing as he did by not seeking power, but seeking to lay down our lives for others. Until we see that, we will never see God's design as good and glorious. Knowing salvation through faith in Jesus flips the idea of authority meaning winning and submission meaning losing on its head. Followers of Christ don't find joy and freedom in gaining power and independence. They find it in submitting to Christ and following Him in laying down their lives for others. Whether head or veil, when you submit to Christ, you win. And that's why we must all look to Him. If you don't know that freedom, then turn from your sin and trust in Him today. It is only in Christ and through Christ that we may honour Christ. How will you honour your head? Let's pray. Our Lord, we give you all the honour, all the glory and all the praise. Forgive us for seeking to go our own way. In your mercy, by your Spirit, continue to work in our hearts, Lord, so that we might submit to you, submit to your good design, and to rejoice in knowing that we are made in your image. Father, help the husbands and wives in our church. May we reflect the goodness and glory of what you have given us, how you have made us, so that others may see the goodness of the gospel of our Lord Jesus who laid down his life for us. It is to him that we look to and to him that we delight and rejoice in. And we ask that you would make us more and more like him, our living head, in Jesus' name. Amen.